Hello, my name is Michael Desch. I'm the director of the Notre Dame International Security Center and a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Outside the Box. With my partner in crime, uh, former Virginia Senator, former Secretary of the Navy, former Assistant Secretary of Defense, former lawyer, former or current lawyer, I guess, uh, former Marine officer, uh, Jim Webb. Jim, good to be with you today to talk about senior military leadership and the future of U.S. national security. Thanks, Mike. And it's uh, good. It's good to be back on the uh, on the podcast routine here, too. I, and I think we have a very special uh, show today. And we have a, uh, a guest uh, who I have a lot of uh, a lot of respect for and a lot of uh, positive uh, belief that he's going to really give us some good stuff to talk about here. Um, General Newbold, Greg Newbold, I've known for a very long time. I'm going to get into a little more about that uh, in a few minutes. But you, you're, the way that uh, you have introduced this show, I think, is perfect. I think it's time for some serious self-analysis among uh, military people, uniformed, and also uh, people who have served in defense uh, capacities and also been commentators for, to look at where we are in terms of senior military leadership. You know, our, our post 9-11 generals and admirals have been treated with a reverence that in our history is matched only by those who led the country to victory during World War II. Their judgment is rarely put to serious test by congressional leadership or major media. And now, in the wake of two decades of costly strategic blunders and an inability to accomplish our national objectives on many different areas, including the Middle East, it's the time has come to lift the veil and uh, uh, respectfully ask hard questions of these leaders, uh, many of whom in the uh, adoring aftermath of 9-11 are simply not used to it. But this is essential that, uh, that it take place in, in my view. If you look at the national polls right now, uh, the, the uh, diminishing respect for our military has been dramatic over the last, last year. And most of that diminished respect has been focused, if you really look at the questions, on the leadership at the top and the decisions that they have made and the credibility that they have been losing uh, among our, our average people out there uh, on the street and, and uh, in the farms and, and uh, working places of America. Um, there's no better person in my view, for us to have this discussion with than General Greg Newbold. And by way of uh, sort of in introducing Greg Newbold, I'd like to start with Al Gray. <laughs> I, you know, I have had the rare opportunity to be able to actually recommend and select a, a commandant of the Marine Corps right after I was uh, appointed to, and confirmed to be Secretary of the Navy. That was one of the first tasks that I had. And after much uh, discussion and thought, I decided that Al Gray should be the person who can bring the Marine Corps out of a funk that was having and into uh, a more vigorous and, and traditional uh, role. And uh, let me tell you, when I put his name forward, there was blood on the floor in terms of the debates on whether or not Al Gray could pull off that job. And we got him into that position. And in my view, he did a, a, one of the greatest jobs of our many commandants over, over uh, the history of our country. And 
I just want you to know, I want to say, I, I feel that way about Greg Newbold. You know, I've, I've been around him a long time. And if I had been secretary of the Navy, when uh, General Newbold's year groups came up, I would have fought just as hard for him to be commandant of the Marine Corps. He's an infantry officer. He uh, commanded at every level from platoon to division. He had uh, uh, very responsible staff jobs. He had a high level of respect and still does among Marines for his wisdom, for his uh, uh, ability to think through issues and look at the history and the traditions of the past and what it really means to have to put uh, fighting people out on the ground to do the country's job. Um, now, I'd like to start this uh, discussion today with the uh, concerns that we are seeing from uh, all different levels, broad and deep, among people who have served in the Marine Corps at, at, at different levels, and also uh, people who care about national defense. And that is the uh, recommendations, and in many cases, by now, two years later, of the implementation of some of the policies that have been put into place by the most recent uh, commandant, General David Berger, who, uh, with very little um, oversight, has created changes in the Marine Corps force structure that many people, including myself, believe could really harm the, met the way that our, our Marine Corps functions in our national security uh, process. And I wanna emphasize, this is not simply a, a, a Marine Corps issue. This is a national security issue. The Marine Corps for more than a hundred years right now has been in place to provide a homogeneous, fully capable fighting force that can deploy anywhere and take on any mission short of nuclear war. And a lot of people, looking at what's going on right now, believe that that mission is falling away and putting the Marine Corps into an unnecessarily subordinate role in terms of our national security. So uh, General Newbold, welcome. And what I would really appreciate you doing now to, to start this off is, can you just walk us through what these changes uh, look like and uh, how they Im impact the ability of the uh, Marine Corps and also our national security? Well, thanks, Jim. That was an intimidating introduction. I'll try not to uh, disappoint. I want to thank Mike for having me on. Uh, and in trying to answer your question, uh, I'll step back a little bit to frame the issue. Uh, no military service creates its own mission and tasks. Those come from two sources. Uh, the Congress of the United States, whose responsibility is uh, to establish uh, how the military functions and to fund it. <clears throat> and the other source of uh, direction comes from the White House through the Secretary of Defense and his or her staff to the services to uh, fulfill their obligations. <clears throat> Unfortunately, in this case, uh, we have a situation where an individual uh, has repositioned the service, the Marine Corps, in a way that he firmly believes will better position it for the future. Uh, but he's done it uh, largely independent of counsel from his active duty members, senior and junior in the Marine Corps, and from 
uh, other communities, whether they would be academic or uh, members of Congress or the retired community. And it's the nature of the Marine Corps to respect the Commandant and uh, his intentions uh, in how he positions the Corps to fulfill those national responsibilities. Um, and uh, uh, to your point, the retired community has been exceedingly patient and deferential. Uh, because that's the relationship we have with the commandants. <clears throat> that patience has expired. And the reason is ex it has expired is what you mentioned. Uh, the Marine Corps was, uh, by tasking an expeditionary force in readiness uh, to go across the globe on the spectrum of conflict from humanitarian relief, uh, peacekeeping, uh, disaster assistance, um, you know, all the way through high-level combat. The Marine Corps participated uh, in great force in Afghanistan and Iraq in uh, Desert Storm, also in to liberate Kuwait. Uh, and it did it by having a relative Swiss knife of capabilities. It could provide uh, Purification of water and, and humanitarian supplies, but it also had the wherewithal to uh, confront any military power. Uh, for example, if it was engaged in the fight in the Ukraine, it would have every counter and more against the Russian forces. Uh, but now what we've seen is a degradation of power by ridding the Marine Corps of substantial capabilities. Some examples, the Marine Corps had a robust force of tanks, armor uh, to engage their counterparts from any country, a very capable M1A1 tank. Every one of those tanks has been eliminated now, not moved into the reserve, but completely discarded. So it doesn't give it a peer competitor capability to fight against uh, a first-rate force. In addition to uh, tanks, the Marine Corps has rid itself of cannon artillery, the ability to suppress, engage with precision, uh, to conduct protective fires. Uh, it has added some missile capability uh, but as Jim knows better than just about anybody, uh, the dependability of cannon artillery and direct support of a ground maneuver unit or in defense of that unit is absolutely essential. But we have gone from 21 of these batteries down to only five. And five for a force of 192,000 is hardly sufficient, as a matter of fact, it's falling. Um, beyond that, uh, uh, infantry is the preeminent maneuver force in the Marine Corps. Uh, the Marine Corps has eliminated 15% of its battalions, which gives it that capability to go any place uh, and, and uh, sustain a fight. But within the remaining battalions, those 
battalions have been reduced by upwards of 40%. So the teeth of the Marine Corps' capability has been documented. The Marine Corps also has aviation that's equal to uh, uh, anybody in the world in helicopters and fighter uh, attack aircraft. But under this plan, over 25% of Marine Corps aviation will be eliminated. Uh, I could go on, engineering assets, the ability to sustain the force, uh, but combat power has been reduced dramatically. Why? To free up funds uh, to uh, provide future capabilities. That's resulted in the gap of capabilities that as you suggest, uh, the nation can ill afford to lose and it was done without the nation's awareness or concurrence. I'll stop there and see what additional questions you have. Uh, that was a really uh, terrific overview, General Newbold. Could you say a little bit about the future capabilities that the current commandant uh, thinks that uh, we need to husband resources to, uh, uh, you know, be in a position to bring online, a and what his vision is uh, of the role of the Marine Corps uh, in the 21st century. That's a good question, Mike. And uh, absent an answer to that, the cuts in forces uh, would not be in contact. So let me address that. It's uh, his opinion following national military strategy that the greatest peer competitor in a fight would be China. And therefore uh, he's taken the Marine Corps global mission and oriented almost exclusively to a Pacific war. Uh, but even within that, he's further focused that to uh, positioning of the Marine Corps on islands throughout Southwest Asia, Southeast Asia, and in the perimeter countries around China. And he intends to position them in very small numbers with little to no sustainability uh, and to arm them with missiles. That is not something the Marine Corps has ever done. Other services do, and uh, they do it quite well. They fund, organize, train, uh, equip, and practice the use of missiles to engage the enemy. The Marine Corps is not, but that would be the new plan. Uh, those missiles right now are not in the possession of the Marine Corps, resulting in this uh, combat power gap that I referred to. But they would consist of two different types of missiles. One is uh, a cruise missile, uh, we call it the Tomahawk, uh, or the two-blanched uh, cruise missile, TLAM for short. That's 80s technologies that has been uh, upgraded since then, but it is still uh, uh, not a future uh, weapon of choice. Uh, there is one in development for the U.S. Navy, and uh, the Navy uh, believes it'll provide a good capability for their ships. Uh, but the Marine Corps would like it to be funded by Congress and put on these remote islands for them to engage the Chinese Navy, to keep the Chinese Navy 
penned in and uh, and capable of interdicting international so, uh, sea lines of communication. Uh, but uh, the perplexity of that notion is not only that it's not a capability the Marine Corps has ever possessed, but it's also not a mission that's appropriate to this service. Uh, it would be appropriate to the U.S. Army or Navy. Yeah, you'd need more than the uh, the missiles. You would need the uh, targeting capability. Um, you know, would this be a plussed up version of like Aegis Ashore? Um, how, what would be the sensors that uh, these units would use to uh, target these things? Uh, has any of that been thought through? Well, it has been thought of. I would make that distinct from thought through. <laughs> there, there are national level assets and theater level assets, air, ground, sea, at sea, that can be integrated with different uh, nodes, in this case, uh, the Marines on that island, to uh, give them a capability to target. Uh, but uh, to a simple mind like mine, uh, the Marines on this isolated post uh, would be easily detected. And when they launched the first strike, uh, I would fear that it would be their last one. Because without mobility, uh, you don't get a chance for uh, subsequent actions. And that works. How do you, how do you call for a reload? Well, in the remote Pacific Islands, you know, uh, the reloads uh, either by air, which aren't possible on these small islands, but by sea, further identify your position. And if you suffer casualties, the magic, uh, you know, uh, six hours for evacuation and treatment no longer exists. And that yeah, the more you disperse your forces, the harder it is to resupply or to do the sites that you're talking about. To, you know, resupply, resupply, command and yeah. control. Yeah. Um, another another thing I, in the, uh, the force structure 2030 document that he put out a few years ago, I, uh, two years ago, I wrote a, a lengthy piece in the national interest on that. And a couple of things that jumped out at, at, at me was, I don't know what the motivation is, but it's it's uh, it's almost like a gesture toward this notion of the whole purple suit military. You know, where if we need if we need a tank, we'll call the army. Um, you know, like really, um, you know, one of the reasons that the Marine Corps developed close air support was that you can't really train uh, your your close air without you, you can't use them without training. You know, you can't say okay, if we need it, we can call the Air Force when the moment comes. And there was language in there about uh, almost, uh, you know, uh, saying that the Marine Corps should be subsidiary to the Navy again. And the Marine Corps missions operational even have, have not simply been uh, along with the Navy these days. Well, those are excellent points. And it gets back to one you made earlier. And it's uh, the mission for the Marine Corps has long been prescribed and and codified in legislation. And this is a break from that. And the dependence upon others to provide the asset in time of crisis or conflict has not worked in the past. It isn't that the other services are parochial, but 
they're funded very carefully and they, they don't create redundancies uh, that allow allocation to their stepbrother, in this case, the Marine Corps. Uh, so counting on tanks or artillery or uh, shipping uh, to resupply, et cetera, is a large leap of faith that I personally have great personal doubts about. And you know, one, another, another uh, point here, just looking at the, the way that the present uh, role, roles and missions of the Marine Corps evolved. Uh, you know, we love in the, in the Marine Corps to talk about uh, the histories, the soldiers of the sea and the red stripe on the on the dress blues for the blood that was shed at Chapultepec and the Mexican War or whatever. But up until World War One, I, I think the total number of Marine Corps KIAs uh, in, in our history was like 330. Uh, World War One changed that when we, when we put sustained ground operations and showed the rest of, of the world what Marine Corps marksmanship and leadership and all these things can do. And from that, over the time, they developed the amphibious mission. They were, you know, the Marine Corps created modern amphibious warfare. Studied the Gallipoli dock uh, landings in, in uh, World War uh, One, perfected them in, in preparation, not to simply become an amphibious force, but to show that they could innovate and be a force in readiness. And it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's there's an old uh, saying in Arkansas, where my mother's from. You know, you can see a pretty flower, and if you pull it out of the ground, it dies. You know, if you if you get away from these kinds of missions, you don't realize how how important and, and special they really were. And this is a you know concern when I look at the, the things that are written in these documents. Um, the Marine Corps that is being formulated now uh, will not be capable of providing what the nation needs. And as you've suggested without the organizational training and ethos of a ready force, uh, assigning it to a niche role will have a great influence how it's used in the future. And I for one agree with your comment that it really takes the Marine Corps back to pre-World War I days when it guarded ships and posts and stations and uh, provided little else for the nation. Uh, the expanded role of the Marine Corps did not come about because the Marine Corps demanded, because the nation required and participation in World War I, II, uh, you know, the humanitarian operations, uh, the operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, in the Mediterranean, uh, all came about because of a national requirement that the Marine Corps could provide. Without it, there is a large gap here. But I wanna make an, another point. Uh, the United States military has two fundamental responsibilities. Uh, the first one is widely accepted and acknowledged and that's to uh, win wars. Uh, the second one is at least equally important, and that's to deter conflict. And we would much prefer the robust capability that fulfills that second mission than the first one. But if you have gaps in capability, 
uh, then you lose deterrent credibility. And in the case of the Marine Corps, it was an ability to position forces offshore, uh, not on host nation ground and uh, international waters to signal to those who would cause trouble that a, a force stands ready, a middleweight force, but a capable force uh, with an elite reputation uh, for deterrence. Uh, when we lose that, we make conflict more likely. And that's why the nation ought to be worried. General, you had mentioned that in addition to the commandant, there are at least two other important equity players um, in uh, this area. Uh, one is Congress, and of course, the other is the Secretary of Defense in the administration. Can you say a little bit uh, about uh, how you think uh, these proposed changes are going to play on the Hill and uh, in the administration? Have they reached that level? Um, are uh, people talking about it um, in uh, those two parts of government? And what are they saying? Mike, the uh, initial portrayal of these initiatives uh, were under the labels of initiative, imagination, uh, out of the box thinking, and under that patina, there was uh, uh, you know grumbles of uh, of applause uh, that you know the stilted thinking of the Pentagon was uh, broken by this uh, innovative thinking. Uh, and there were some articles in the media that uh, uh, endorsed what was happening. And the initial reception on the Hill was muted because there was little knowledge of what was happening, uh, but was generally favorable. But it's because there was little knowledge of what was happening and it was all crafted uh, in terms of an imaginative approach to the future. As details have come out, uh, there's been a great deal more concern voiced. And even though there are articles critical in the past, of what was happening, including one by Jim Webb. Um, they were not uh, circulated uh, broadly and it did not result in follow-up action. That period is ended. And now uh, uh, the concerns are being raised and the uh, dialogue has begun. And if I may add a couple of things on that. Um, another problem was that this, uh, proposal and actually decision uh, came out during the middle of COVID. I know because when my article came out, I went over to the Hill, I talked to some people that I know. And, uh, you know, the principles, you know, someone who's a, a sitting senator or, you know, that sort of thing might express an interest, but the ability to convene committee uh, staff and actually have hearings on these sorts of things just wasn't there during, uh, during uh, COVID. And, um, also, there is a deference um, in, the, in the Congress right now, as, as I mentioned earlier, part of it because there are so few of them who have served in the military and they, you know, and as, as you were saying, uh, General Newbold, how, uh, you know, they're, 
they want to uh, support what they believe, or, or at least what are being marketed as new ideas from a four-star general. And you know, the historical backdrop really hasn't been there. And it is coming now. You can see it uh, with uh, uh, a large number of, of uh, your fellow uh, high-ranking uh, former general officers who now are really stepping up the game here in, in order to protect the future of the Marine Corps and of our national security. That's all, that's all correct. It's uh, the volume is going to be increased uh, here very shortly. And as I said, the, uh, the debate will begin, but the, the judge and arbiter of all this will be the U.S. Congress. And are you confident that the Congress will engage this debate with the uh, depth and the uh, seriousness that it deserves? I'm confident uh, that members of Congress uh, will address it, um, but as everybody listening to the podcast know, there are enormous uh, and complex issues now confronting the country, not just through Ukraine, but the economy. We're now passing beyond COVID uh, at this time anyway. Uh, but there are a number of different priorities, and you have to gain their attention to realize this is not a parochial service issue. But as Jim said, it's a, it's a matter of national security, and uh, it deserves questions and, and answers that satisfy the needs. Uh, me, uh, my hope is that Congress holds hearings. Um. Let me let me add to that because it's you can hope for that uh, the, the the Congress basically is, is very conciliatory at least on the Senate side these, these days as opposed to when I was a committee counsel in the House years and years ago or uh, or when I was in the Pentagon when you'd look at the uh, uh, the authorizing committees like the Armed Services Committee and know that they they were going to hold your feet to the fire on things that you're bringing over there and it's not quite that way now but another piece of this. Uh, is if, if you look back to Cap Weinberger's Pentagon, you know, I, I have tremendous respect for, for Secretary Weinberger, uh, worked, worked with him, met with him daily for four years. And they had a very invigorated Defense Re Resources Board. Every summer uh, for, for a couple of weeks, it would be just the principals, the main, main you know, top 25 people in the Pentagon would sit down and the evaluators, as when I was Assistant Secretary of Defense, would, would be able to pick apart a service's recommendations when they brought them to the table. And you could really scrub them with the people who were you know, daily looking at defense issues. I don't know where that is now, but if there were strong enough civilian leadership in the Pentagon, they should be, they should be putting that kind of uh, analysis in front of a, of a board like that, even before it gets over to the Congress. I don't see it. Uh, I, I agree with you. Uh, this administration came in a little over a year ago, and they inherited this. And at the time, there was a little pushback that rose to their level. It certainly wasn't brought up during the campaign. So with uh, different priorities, including social priorities for the military, uh, this was put on the back burner. I tried to raise it uh, with no reception. Uh, and you're right, uh, the Pentagon should, should have started under this administration on the first day to 
evaluate what was needed for the future and to what degree we were satisfying it and identified the disconnect between those two and then challenged it. But that has not taken place. Yeah, I just worry that the combination, you know, of a, uh, as Jim pointed out before, a tendency to defer to the senior uniform leadership on questions like this, combined with the fact that it's hard to see, you know, what the equity of an individual congressperson is in getting involved in this sort of fight, that it'd be hard to, you know, get the, the, uh, legislative branch as a whole much involved in it. I mean, that's been sort of the story, at least of the last 20 years, uh, that uh, you don't get elected or reelected for the most part by uh, getting involved in a, a detailed fight like this. Well, a parallel may, might be during the uh, COVID pandemic when uh, members of the Congress uh, were trying to assess uh, the health crisis. Uh, but if your entire career has been as a lawyer or a businessman or you know, member of the military, then your uh, background and experience does not lend itself to that. And you become deferential and seek uh, other opinion as you can. In this case, as Jim pointed out, there's uh, depressingly low levels of knowledge about the subject. And uh, as a result, they defer. And in this case, uh, deference is not called for. And so we're hoping to raise a clarion call to get them to question things. I think, uh, I think the, uh, the uh, willingness now of the, uh, the uh, senior retired uh, military folk, particularly Marine Corps folk, will have an impact in the Congress. It's, it hasn't been there yet, and I, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, once once they see, once the members over there see the expertise and the experience and, and the wisdom that it goes along with what they are saying, they will hopefully start looking at this different. Uh, General, we, you know, we're we're about a little more than halfway, maybe a little more than halfway done with with our our, our show here, and I wanted to get into something else that you raised, and I know Mike has some questions on this too, uh, but you mentioned ethos and you mentioned, uh, you know, the, 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 the fragility of the, of the military ethos. And also um, just a few minutes ago, you were talking about the social issues that uh, the, tend to come to the front burner when uh, Congress does, uh, you know, do some oversight on, on issues. And, um, with respect to I have two, two questions that fold together here, but uh, one is, I know with, uh, with the General Berger's commandancy, there's been a tendency to, to really move toward what people would call the woke side of things. Um, and uh, one of them is the notion that you can parallel a civilian into the uniformed Marine Corps to do a technical skill without them having to go any through any through any Marine Corps training, and that's driving, you know, the the you know the people who went through Paris Island and and you know really had to sacrifice in order to be called a Marine, you know, to see that that, that that's happening. It's just driving them wild, and and 
And for many justifiable reasons, you have to earn the Eagle Globe and anchor. And hey, if you want, you want a technician, hire a civilian. Uh, and I don't know what's going on there. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have a lot of thoughts on it, uh, and I've and I've written some pieces on it. Um, but uh, for the sake of time here, let me focus on on this um, specifically with regard to the Marine Corps. Uh, but more broadly to all of the military. Uh, a writer on civil military affairs some years ago said the distinguishing characteristic between a soldier and a civilian is that the professional soldier puts a line of duty above the line of self-interest. That's, of course, simplistic, and, but it gets to the point. Uh, from the very beginning, what we do I'll speak to our service, the Marine Corps, is take away individuality uh, with what you might call gimmicks, such as shaving heads, putting everybody in baggy uniforms, and prohibiting the use of the first-person pronoun so that people understand that what's important is the success of the unit and the subordination of self to achieve uh, success in the mission. Uh, that is part of that alchemy that has worked so well for the Marine Corps. But when you bypass that uh, to bring in technicians uh, without uh, you know, the concomitant sense of responsibility to sacrifice, uh, it creates some problems. But you've also pointed out it's unnecessary. We have uh, enormously talented civilians working in all the services who do their jobs quite well, and they can have technical skills to augment those that the services have, and they have permanency that, uh, that the military can't. Uh, we also have industry that supports the military with what we call civilian technical representatives that are involved in every day and every place. And they can uh, be paid at higher salaries. They can uh, have some stability in their lives and we gain great benefits from that. But the assumption that you can beam in uh, people for lower pay and instability and uh, disruption and sacrifice, uh, and that will somehow entice them to, you know, shave their heads and wear funny-looking outfits and shave and, their beards too. Well, um, as a matter of fact, there is one Marine now who's been allowed to have a beard, uh, it's, and, and he's not nearly as attractive with a beard as you are. Mark, so, <laughs> it's grossly unfair. But, uh, you know, it, we call them uniforms for a reason, and it's for uniformity, not uniformity of appearance, but uniformity in a cohesive sense. And you attack that cohesion and the selflessness when you uh, disrupt the DNA that we inculcate in all of them. So, General, let me ask you a little bit about 
the legitimate avenues of dissent for a senior officer like yourself. And of course, now you're a retired flag um, and within pretty broad uh, uh, bounds, you, you can exercise your rights as a citizen. Um, but what about when you're serving? And I'm thinking uh, particularly to a period in your career uh, when you were J3 on the joint staff, and it was at least widely reported that uh, you, know, you were uncomfortable uh, with the decision the country had made to uh, go to war in Iraq. What, what, what are the, uh, the bounds there? And uh, uh, what is the role and the obligation of the military officer, the senior officer, when they think the country is uh, going in the wrong direction uh, to protest? Uh, Mike, that's an extremely important question. Uh, I'm glad you asked it. And I want to start off with an anecdote. Um, it is not widely known that the oath of office given to enlisted members is different than that given to officers. And when I first learned that, it struck me as not only odd, but unfair. Uh, we all uh, sign up for allegiance to the United States, and it ought to be a, a common uh, bit of language that, for which we have or hold up our right hand and swear to perform that. But as I studied it more and as I matured, I began to understand that the enlisted oath says that the members will obey the orders of the president of the United States and the officers pointed out a casual phrase. But what it means in reality is that they're willing to do anything that they're ordered to do, including risk their lives. And Arlington is full of those who have done just that. The officer oath is a little bit different. It does not include that phrase. The officer oath said that they will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And it goes on from there, but it does not say that they obey the orders of the President of the United States and the officers are part of them, because there is an expectation that officers will look out for the enlisted that have risked so much for them and show judgment and force when required to speak up and, and to participate in the process. Now, there's a fine line here that we're approaching, and uh, is not to be crossed over. And that's the civilian control of the military. Uh, and in that regard, you know, the president, the secretary of defense, the service secretaries are the ones in charge. There is no question about that and no danger to it. But uh, there's an equal responsibility with that authority. And that is not to just issue orders to, in this case, the senior officers, uh, but to respect the experience they've had for the minimum of 25 years going up to 40 years. Um, and that too often fails to take place. There is then a responsibility for senior officers with a conscience uh, of 
of loyalty to the enlisted members to speak up, but to speak up in private to provide their best counsel and to try and steer policy to protect and defend them. If uh, they are ignored and the consequences are grave, then their only choice is to resign or retire. You do not speak out in military in contradiction to civilian leadership and policy. Um, but as, as Jim has suggested, far too few do that. And, uh, and it bothers me deeply because it's the young people, the 20 year olds, et cetera, that pay a price for hasty decisions that are not uh, subjected to good counsel. So do you think the relative handful of general officers that we've had resign or more often retire early in their career uh, is in a way um, reflective of uh, a, a lack of full commitment uh, in the uh, general officer corps to doing the right thing? I do. Uh, in my own example, uh, uh, as the Iraq war approached in 2002, uh, military advice and counsel was not only not solicited, but it was uh, prevented, I would say. There was, there was not an opportunity to speak, uh, but uh, officers at my level uh, the three-star level and above, uh, often spoke to me and, and had great questions about what we were doing and, and grave concerns. Um, none of them spoke up. Uh, and it, there's a part of the community that says ours is not to uh, question. Ours is to carry out, and they believe that. Uh, they, including some good-hearted people, uh, they said that's that's not my job. It is their job. They tell me what they would like done, and my job is to ensure it's carried out. The disconnect with me is to the two separate oaths, and the failure to appreciate the consequences on down the line not only to the young people, to, to the United States. And uh, I personally believe there's a responsibility, uh, if not asked, to insist on telling. That it's their choice whether to accept it or not. Um, but it is a grave responsibility of senior officers to make sure that uh, their voice is heard. And if I may, if I may on that, General, um, my view, from the time I was a young second lieutenant as a rifle platoon commander in Vietnam, was always not that that applied to senior officers, just the most senior officers, but that it applied to all officers. And I never hesitated, uh, even just as a platoon commander, if I thought my people were being unnecessarily put into a, a situation that could be done in another way, I never hesitated to speak up uh, to to my command. I think that is the the essence of of true military leadership. 
Um, I have to tell you a little, tell uh, Mike a little story here though, when, on uh, your, your situation when you were in the JCS, because um, you will recall when I wrote a piece for the Washington Post five months before the invasion of Iraq, it was the first major piece in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, in a major newspaper basically saying, uh, this is going to be a strategic blunder. It's going to empower Iran and long-term it's going to empower China. And by the way, they, there is no exit strategy because they do not intend to leave. And I get an email from General Newbold <laughs> saying, you are not only right, you don't know how right you really are. <laughs> and that was, that was the moment when I, when I my, my respect for, for you and, and your, your moral courage went sky high. Well, um, I'm comfortable with what I did. And uh, um, I suspect the others uh, are also comfortable, but uh, uh, I felt a, a responsibility there. That's why I did it. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, though, is, is this a conversation that should be part of the uh, development, particularly uh, of the uh, flag officers? I mean, is there, you know, a conversation uh, over the course of uh, an officer's career about uh, when and how dissent can be legitimately conveyed? Because uh, I'm not sure outside uh, the services that uh, we have a good sense of, uh, you know, how the institution or how they, the officers that are growing up in the institution think about these issues. And uh, yeah. One comment first, and that is that uh, the human dynamics in the military are not far different than those in business or in any other walks of life where you get uh, a boss, let's say, who is uh, immune to discussion or alternate points of view. Uh, but the consequences in this case are so much more, more grave. But the, the military does hold these conversations and it trains people uh, from a very junior level to express their dissent uh, courteously when they, when they have it. And what you find is in the junior ranks, they're better at it than in the senior ranks huh. uh, when you would expect the opposite to be true. Uh, and, you know, they, the old Bartok uh, so often uh, in the Marine Corps was, what do they have to lose? My gosh, they're already a lieutenant colonel, colonel or general. Uh, why don't they speak up? And it's a legitimate question. But uh, what happens over the years is that uh, they question their own judgment. You know, maybe uh, this, the boss is correct or but most often it's an issue, I think, of moral courage. Well, you know, I, I, let, me, let me add something on that because I fully agree with everything you just said. Um, first of all, it's a part of human nature to rationalize if you have a, a, a difficult situation from which you're going to pay. You see it, you see it in the Congress all the time. You know, when you have a, a, a bill or a position that you, you're not comfortable with and, and, uh, and someone will say, well, look, I just got to vote on it this time. You know, I'm voting on it so I can stay here. 
You know, that's the, what you hear over and over again in the, on the Senate floor. You know, if I vote against this, then I'm not going to get reelected. And then I can't do all these really good things, you know. And, uh, and I think the, uh, your, your uh, anecdote about how it's easier at the lower levels than it is at the higher levels is also, let's be frank here, you know, by the time you're a three star and, 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 uh, and, and beyond, uh, there are a lot of uh, post-career uh, benefits that are going to disappear if you, uh, you know, if you are viewed to be, uh, you know, disloyal. I mean, there, 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 or, or if you're not, let me just leave it at disloyal. Um, you know, and that's uh, how do we say this? Uh, I understand it, um, but. I have, you know, one of my one of my great heroes in the Marine Corps was General Bob Barrow, and and it's one of the things that he said. He was just a terrific uh, leader on, on every level, and he used to used to say to me. I used to call him every year on the on the Marine Corps birthday, even after he retired, and, and uh, he would say, you know, there's all different kinds of courage, but the hardest courage is moral courage. You know, uh, Mike, I'll give one quick counter. Or elaboration on what I've said. Uh, at the time, I uh, offered to resign uh, as a result of the buildup to the Iraq War. Uh, Colin Powell, one of my heroes, man for whom I worked on the uh, Joint Staff when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and uh, a man who was, at the time was Secretary of State and uh, President in the National Security Council meetings I was able to attend. He chose a different path than I did, and he did it because he knew that if he left, that he'd be replaced by a, a zealot who had even uh, harsher views and would be more corrosive. So he made the decision I need to stick around and, to the degree I can, try to steer things to a better path. Uh, I'm not saying that's uh, opposite of what I did, uh, but he was able to give his opinions and, and make them known. They were ignored, but uh, he could do that. Uh, the military officers at the time did not. Moral courage is a hard thing to teach. Um, but I think, you know, uh, a lot of people understand its importance, you know, throughout every walk of life in society. Um, and yet I think there's a sense that uh, we see a lot less of it uh, than we'd like uh, these days. Um, on the other hand, I think a lot of us uh, outside the military sort of think you guys and gals are uh, have it in your uh, DNA. And uh, uh, I, I think some people clearly do, uh, and I'd include you in that category. But uh, I wonder if, uh, uh, you know, fewer and fewer of the uh, senior officers um, have it, uh, at least compared to the past. Am I looking at the past through rose-colored glasses, or do you think that, uh, you know, even in the uh, general officer corps that uh, it isn't what it once was? Well, I'm not sure that it ever was. Uh... Uh, at least in modern times. I, I have not witnessed uh, a great deal of that. There are some noteworthy examples that 
well, Jim and I know within our service, I would mention General Barrow, General Wilson, General Gray uh, among them. And a good friend of mine, Jim Mattis, resigned rather than uh, continue to uh, face what he had to face. Uh, but it is a rare occurrence. Migrate to advantages. I, I never matured beyond captain. And I also was promoted about eight levels higher than I should have been. So I had very little to lose. Well, General, uh, this has been a, uh, as uh, Jim promised, a uh, very, not only wide ranging, but also a very deep uh, conversation. And uh, we've ridden you hard and uh, I fear we're gonna put you in the barn uh, wet, but we should uh, probably uh, take this opportunity unless uh, Jim has a, a last, uh, benediction he wants to uh, give for this conversation uh, to thank you for uh, not only uh, a long lifetime of service, but also for uh, joining us uh, here and outside the box. Jim, any last words? General, um, you have not disappointed me, I'll tell you that, and, and it's just been great to have you and to listen to how, how frank you can be on these things and that a lot of people are going to appreciate what you've said today and also hopefully what uh, you and your cohorts are going to be doing on the, on the, on the Marine Corps issue to, uh, to try to bring some common I've, sense. I've enjoyed the conversation with, with both of you. It's uh, been enjoyable and uh, to the degree that it might influence some people's minds, I'm glad to have contributed. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap. <laughs>